does that. Baptism. 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 The life of grace, right? The sacraments, the Eucharist, all the sacraments that bestow, increase, or restore sanctifying grace, right? That's how she gives life. And teaching them and guiding them, she does by means of her magisterial office, okay? So, let's look now at, um, we're going to look at the infallibility of the church, but before we do that, I want to introduce to you um, the concept that is intrinsically connected to infallibility, and that is the indefectibility of the church. The indefectibility of the church. The indefectibility of the church is the teaching, number one, that she will endure until the end of the world. That's part of it. She will endure till the ends of the world. And secondly, and perhaps even more importantly, she will never become corrupted in faith, authority, morals, or sacraments. In other words, the Catholic Church will always be the proper representation of Christianity, even though its own members are sinful and may err. Okay? Now, there's a great book by Cormac Murphy O'Connor. Um, he, wrote, he wrote The Gift of Authority, uh, and in that... He tells us, Diane, if you'd read it. Unmute yourself. Sorry. In the process of testing such formulations, cautiously, but with confidence in the promise of Christ that it will persevere and be maintained in the truth. This is what is meant by the indefectibility of the church. Okay, so that's another way of looking at it, that the church will always persevere and be maintained in the truth, that it would be impossible for her to teach falsehood, as we will see, and we will see more about why that is as we go through tonight. The International Theological Commission uh, had a document called The Interpretation of Dogma in 1989, and that says... Uh, Vinny? The apostolic tradition of the church cannot undergo any essential corruption because of the permanent assistance of the Holy Spirit, which guarantees its indefectibility. Okay, so why can it not, uh, why can't, why will it never undergo corruption? Because it has the promise, the assistance of the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is the guarantor of the church's indefectibility and guess what that's number that's the answer number four see i'm making it easy for you now from now until the final so as you can see the catholic church claims that it cannot be corrupted why because it claims to be the one true church that was founded by jesus and the apostles on the apostles it is necessary for salvation so it has the authority to uh, reconcile sinners with the church, to represent Christ, to dispense indulgences, for example, to absolve sin, to instruct people in what they should do before God, 
She has the authority over evil spirits to perform exorcisms. She possesses infallibility in the deposit of divine revelation. And I'm going to, we're going to go into this a lot more detail tonight. Doctrine and morals. Um, so only the Catholic Church has the authority to interpret scripture. In fact, the Catholic Church gave us the Bible, the canonical scriptures, administer the sacraments, and so on and so forth. Only her ministers can act in the authority of Christ when united with the Pope. Okay. Uh, she's been endowed with the authority of Christ, as has also her magisterium, which is infallible. Now, let's look at, first of all, the Anglican... Catholic International Commission Authority in the Church. This came out in 1981, and it's still talking about indefectibility. So, um, Paul, would you read that for us, please? Which, uh, which Paul? I'm sorry, hold on. Paul Montanero? Yes, okay. This is the meaning of indefectibility, a term which does not speak of the Church's lack of defects, but confesses that Despite all its many weaknesses and failures, Christ is faithful to his promise that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, the Catholic Church. Okay. Um, so that is a key biblical passage then uh, for answer number five uh, as to why the church is indefectible, right? The gates of hell can never prevail against the church. Remember that Satan is known as the father of lies. So, you know, if the church's uh, uh, indefectibility were to fail, uh, then the father of lies would have a field day, right? But the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. No matter how sinful her individual members are, no matter how sinful members of her hierarchy are, okay? Let's look now again at the Catholic Encyclopedia on the Church. Um, Douglas, please. By, the, <clears throat> by this term is signified not merely that the Church will persist till the end of time, but further will preserve unimpaired its essential characteristics. The Church can never undergo any constitutional change which will make it, as a social organism, something different from what it was originally. It can never become corrupt in faith or in morals, nor can it ever lose the apostolic hierarchy or the sacraments through which Christ communicates grace to men. The gift of indefectibility is expressly promised to the church by Christ in the words in which he declares that the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Okay, so I think that uh, gives us a pretty, pretty clear understanding of what indefectibility means. Um, but the indefectibility of the church cannot be so unless there is protection given by the Holy Spirit in her teaching. So you can see when I said it is intrinsically connected to the gift of infallibility. When we speak about infallibility of the church's magisterium, um, we're not talking about the same thing as inspiration that we give to sacred scripture, for example. Inspiration means that God himself is the uh, infused his own truth into the written word of God. God is the author of uh, scripture. 
um, this is why we often refer to the Bible as the Word of God, right? But this is not the same thing as inspiration. Um, infallibility is a much more modest reality. It's really God's way of assuring his people that he cannot deceive nor be deceived. That whatever secrets and whatever divine mysteries he shares with us for the sake of our salvation, we can be absolutely 100% sure are true. Right? So what we mean by infallibility is that the teaching of the Pope and the bishops is preserved from error. That's it in a nutshell. Preserved from error. Okay? Why? The Holy Spirit protects their teaching from error. Okay? And that's because when they are teaching in a solemn way or in their ordinary day-to-day -day teaching, when they exercise the day-to-day -day ordinary teaching office, they're teaching something that has been divinely revealed. And as such, they have the authority to bind the consciences of Catholics. Uh, so the Holy Spirit protects them from teaching error. You don't want to bind Catholics' consciences to falsehood, right? God forbid. So here's where we say that infallibility is more modest than, let's say, inspiration, because whereas inspiration means that the divine truth that is contained in a particular text of the Bible is there because the Holy Spirit, um, because of the Holy Spirit, the gift of infallibility says that the absence of positive error in what they teach is there because the Holy Spirit will not allow the entire church to be led into positive error. Right? If that were so, then the church would cease to be the church. She would become corrupted in her faith and moral teaching, in her sacraments and God knows what else, right? And then the promise of Jesus to send the Holy Spirit to lead the church into all truth would fail. And that is impossible. Why is it impossible? Because it's the promise of God the Son. I've told you before, many times I've used that expression. This isn't rocket science. Okay? And the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Blessed Trinity who cannot fail or deceive. Okay? Now, another thing that infallibility does not mean is freedom from the need to reform. And that's on your question list, too. Does infallibility mean that the church never needs to reform? No, absolutely not. The church is constantly in need of reform because she is composed of sinful human beings. So it's always necessary for the church to be purified and renewed, right? But there is still the divine protection from error in her teaching, okay? You know, in the past we had bad popes, you know, I've heard Catholics ask me this question, but what about the bad popes? Well, yeah, there were bad popes in, the, uh, in certain periods of the church. Thankfully, not in recent times. We've had a string of saintly uh, popes in, in the 20th century and, be, and even before. Um, 
But even when there were bad popes, the bad popes were personally bad. In other words, they were sinners. But they never taught anything contrary to what to the faith. Right? Because they were bad, they just failed to live up to their own teaching. But that doesn't mean that the teaching was an error. You see the distinction? It's very important. So it means that the church is guided by the Holy Spirit so as not to lose what is essential to her mission, including the transmission of revealed truth in its integrity. Okay? This is so critically important. The church has to teach the truth because it is God's truth. It's what God has revealed for the sake of our salvation. The truth is like a road map leading us to heaven. We need that road map. We would never have been able to find that map on our own if God didn't reveal it to us, right? And if we don't know what the truth is, or if we're confused about what it is, we can be very easily led astray by our own disordered passions and drives and appetites and, you know, uh, darkness, dullness of intellect, all the, all the things that affected the, the, uh, the, human, the human soul uh, because of the fall, concupiscence and everything else. Now, the biblical sources of the church's infallibility can be found in the same scriptures I quoted earlier uh, at the beginning uh, to support the authority of the church's teaching office. But for the sake of a review, I will use the most important biblical sources, okay? Number one, Jesus, command, Jesus commanded and commissioned the apostles to teach the whole world and every nation in it, promising to be with them until the end of the time, okay? And that command of his and his promise were addressed not only to them, but also to their lawful successors. He is with them through the Holy Spirit. And on the night of his passion, he said, he prayed, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another paraclete, another comforter or helper or counselor, to be with you forever, the spirit of truth, he dwells in you and will be in you the spirit whom the father will send in my name and he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. So the entire divine revelation, all that the apostles heard from Jesus and were taught uh, by Jesus uh, up until the moment of his ascension in heaven is contained in this deposit of faith. Okay. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. Not some truth, not a little bit of the truth, not a partial truth, the whole truth. Everything you need to know to walk in the path of righteousness and get to your destiny, which is eternal union with God in the kingdom. Now, there's a, a term I'd like to introduce to you, maybe you already heard of it, in theology. I think we, I did speak it once in response to a question Vinnie might have had, uh, you know, weeks ago. We speak of appropriation in Catholic theology. And by appropriation, appropriation means assigning a work or attribute to one of the divine persons 
as though belonging to that divine person alone, um, whereas it really belongs to all three divine persons because God is one. So when we speak of the appropriating, in such appropriation, we're guided by the notion of the relations um, which each divine person bears to the others. And we have to remember that with each divine person, um, when, when each divine person is, in a sense, assigned uh, a work as though that divine person were the author of it or the, the only one doing it, um, we have to realize that um, all three persons are involved. Okay. Now, for our purposes, by appropriation, the perpetual assistance of the Holy Spirit is named as the source and principle of the church's infallibility. Okay? You would say here that Jesus himself has appropriated to the Holy Spirit this work of preserving the church and the truth. Okay? And it was Christ who did this. He, Christ appropriated the Holy Spirit as the sanctifier, right? and as the source of the church's infallibility, okay? So appropriation helps to keep us, it kind of helps keep before our eyes uh, the relations among the divine persons one to another, um, and it leads to, I think, a more explicit faith in the Blessed Trinity, right? It it helps us to not forget uh, any of the divine persons, especially the Holy Spirit, who often gets, you know, short shrift and is often the forgotten person of the Trinity. Okay. So by giving them the homage and adoration that they deserve. So scriptures appropriate the work of creation to God the Father, the work of redemption to God the Son, and the work of sanctification and the guarantee um, of the church's infallibility to God the Holy Spirit. Okay. But again, remember, all three divine persons are at work in all these enterprises since they cannot be separated one from the other, okay? Now let's take a look at some church documents about the matter. <clears throat> um, excuse me, let me get a bottle of water here. Look at Dei Berbum. Uh, well, we, we fam- we're familiar with this one. Let's just uh, briefly look through this because we, we, we've I've used this before. In fact, I think I have it written the second time in your handout, which we really don't need. I don't know why I did that, but this it says so. So the task of interpreting the Word of God, both the oral tradition and Scripture has been entrusted exclusively to the living teaching office of the church. Okay, the magisterium, whose authority is exercised in the name of Christ, okay? Now, the thing here we want to look into, uh, make sure we get, is that the magisterium has a, is, provides a service to the church. It serves the word of God, okay? It only teaches what has been handed on and... It listens to it, guards it, it explains it faithfully, okay? That's what the magisterium does, okay? And 
along with sacred tradition and scripture and the divine office uh, or, uh, magisterium, all are linked and contribute to the salvation of souls. So they're ordered to the salvation, it's ordered to the salvation of souls, okay? Let's look at Catechism Entry 888. Um, let's see. George, would you read that for us, please? Okay. Bishops with priests as co-workers have their first task, preach the gospel of God to all men in keeping with the Lord's command. They are heralds of faith who draw new disciples to Christ. They are authentic leaders of the apostolic faith endowed with this authority of Christ. Okay, the authentic teachers, right? Okay. Okay, and in 889, we got a series of these. I just want to get, we'll go through them. Um, uh, Robert? Robert Levy? Hello? Robert there? Okay. I see him in the box there, but... I don't know if he hears me. He's got to be hearing me. He probably has the mute on. Do you have the mute, mute, on, mute, mute, mute button on, Robert? No, it doesn't show that he has okay. Any Well, then anybody... Uh, Joan, go ahead, Joan. Sure. In order to preserve the church and the purity of the faith handed on by the apostles, Christ, who is the truth, willed to confer on her a share in his own infallibility. By a supernatural sense of faith, the people of God, under the guidance of the church's living magisterium, unfailingly adheres to this faith. Okay, so what is it? It's a share in Christ's own infallibility. See, Jesus Jesus is infallible. He can never lie. He can never speak anything but false, anything but the truth. So, of course, his church, which is his mystical body, is going to be endowed with that gift. It has to be, okay? Number 890, uh, James. The mission of the magisterium is linked to the definitive nature of the covenant established by God with his people in Christ. It is this magisterium's task to preserve God's people from deviations and defections and to guarantee them the objective possibility of professing the truth without error. Thus, the pastoral duty of the magisterium is aimed at seeing to it that the people of God abides in the truth that liberates. To fulfill this service, Christ endowed the church's shepherds with the charism of infallibility in matters of faith and morals. The exercise of this charism takes several forms. Okay, now, um, this is so important, right? The truth that liberates. The world has a different truth. Right? You tune out of this class and put on your television set and you're gonna get a whole different truth, right? The truth about the human person, uh, what life is about, why we're here, what we're supposed to be doing, life after death, all kinds of conflicting quote unquote truths are out there, okay? None of those truths liberate, but this truth does. The next thing that's important in that passage is that the charism and infallibility extends to two areas, faith and morals. Faith and morals, okay? Now, the next paragraph is extremely important. 
and helps you to answer a question there. <clears throat> so let's um, uh, let's see. Uh, someone want to read? Just just uh, go ahead. This... I'll, I'll do it. Okay, Stephen. Thank 891. you. Eight ninety one. Eight ninety one. The Roman Pontiff, head of the College of Bishops enjoys this infallibility in the virtue of his office when as supreme pastor and teacher of all the faithful who confirms his brethren brethren in the faith he proclaims by a definitive act a doctrine pertaining to faith or morals the infallibility promised to the church is also present in the body of bishops when together with peter's successor they exercise the supreme magisterium above all in in an ecumenical council. When the church through its supreme magisterium proposes a doctrine for belief as being divinely revealed and as the teaching of Christ, the definitions must be adhered to with the obedience of faith. This infallibility extends as far as the deposit of divine revelation itself. Okay, so, uh... Entry number 890 told us at the end that there were different forms. So now 891 tells us what those forms are. So the first one, when the Pope, as head of the College of Bishops, uh, confirms his brethren in the faith by a definitive act proclaiming uh, a matter of faith and morals. Okay? So uh, that's infallible dogma. And infallible dogma would be what's of the faith. We'll go back to this later. Um to give you examples of what that is later on, okay, um, requires the obedience of faith because it's God himself who is revealing. The second one is when the body of bishops with the Pope exercise their magisterium, especially in an ecumenical council. When an ecumenical council uh, declares something, uh, a dogma of the faith to be revealed with Catholic and divine faith, okay, again, based on God who is revealing, okay? Um, so that would be another one. Uh, a belief that is divinely revealed requires obedience of faith, all right? Now, it's not just the Pope and bishops who enjoy the gift of infallibility. This might surprise you. The gift belongs to the whole body of the church. That means that the whole body throughout the world has a sense of the faith. Okay, there's a supernatural sense of the faith, what we call the sensus fidei, possessed by believers. And the International Theological Commission, uh, in its document on that, sensus fidei in the life of the church, tells us a little more about what that is. Um, let's try Robert again. Is Robert listening? I don't know. Yes. Robert, welcome. Hello, Would you please do us the favor of reading that document from the International Theological Commission, Census Fidei in the Life of the Church? The Holy People of God. No, no, not that one. Not, I don't know where you are. It starts with, by the gift of the Holy Spirit. You all have that? Do you see it? No. Okay. Go ahead, read it. Page three. No. No, I don't. I don't see that one. It's I right. Well, to read. Oh. Way to read. Okay. It. 
William, do you have it? Yes. Would you read it, please? I can't hear you. William, your mic is off. William. Hello? Can you hear me? He's trying to turn it on. Okay. <clears throat> Technology. Well, this gives you a breather. <laughs> All right. How about the other poll? How about now? Can you hear okay, me? Okay. Now yes. I can hear you. Okay. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. By the gift of the Holy but, sorry. It's like By the gift of the, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit of Truth, who comes from the Father and bears witness to the Son, all of the baptized participate in the prophetic office of Jesus Christ, the faithful and true witness. They are to bear witness to the gospel and to the apostolic faith in the church and in the world. The Holy Spirit anoints them and equips them for that high calling conferring on them a very personal and intimate knowledge of the faith of the church. In the first letter of St. John, the faithful are told, you have been anointed by the Holy One and all of you have knowledge. The anointing that you receive from Christ abides in you. And so you do not need anyone to teach you. His anointing teaches you about all things. Okay, so it makes sense that the faithful who are baptized sharing in the threefold offices of Christ would exercise their prophetic office by living the faith, by adhering to the truth, by our obedience to it. Okay. Is there another uh, uh, section there? As a result, do you have that one? No. I have it. Go ahead, Colleen. As a result, the faithful have an instinct for the truth of the gospel, which enables them to recognize and endorse authentic Christian doctrine and practice and to reject what is false. That supernatural instinct intrinsically linked to the gift of faith received in the communion of the church is called the census fide, and it enables Christians to fulfill their prophetic prophetic calling. Okay, so this, this, what is it? It's this supernatural instinct for the truth. You know, you hear, well, I'll, t I'll tell you about this in a minute. It's, a su it's supernatural because it's aroused and sustained by the Holy Spirit. It gives the faithful the supernatural sense that what they are being taught is the truth. If a priest preached a sermon in which he denied that Mary is the mother of God, um, how do you think the faithful in the pews would react? Rejected. They'd say, this guy's been drinking or something. He's off the deep end. What? That would get your attention. Well, you know, that actually did happen. Uh, remember, Vinny, uh, you took Mariology with me. Actually, a bishop did just that 
in Constantinople in the fourth century. Nestorius. The patriarchal archbishop of Constantinople, Nestorius, and he has the distinction of having a heresy named after him, the Nestorian heresy, on a Christmas day. Now, imagine this, Christmas homily. He got up there and told the people that Mary was not to be considered the mother of God. She only gave birth to the human Christ, not to a divine person. Well, you know what happened? He had a rebellion on his hands. They just about wanted to lynch him. Christmas morning, he gets up and gives, what a shpilabip, given a homily like that. Can you imagine? That's what Bishop Caggiano likes to use, that expression. Italians know it, the shpilabip. You know, someone who doesn't have their act together, right? Now... A friend of mine who converted to Catholicism read a catechism and he had the sense that when he was a Protestant, he had the sense that what he was reading was the truth. He said, I never read anything like this before in my life. I was never taught anything like this. Then he read another catechism written by a bunch of liberals and he found its teaching was off. And later he came to know that the second catechism that was off had been condemned by the sacred congregation for the doctrine of the faith in Rome. He had no knowledge of that when he read it. He just figured, I read one catechism. This gives me, I have a sense this is all true. Then he read the second one thinking it was just going to be another Catholic catechism that would say the same thing, but it didn't say the same thing. And he had the sense that uh, the Holy Spirit gave him to know when he was being given the authentic truth handed on by the apostles and when he was not being given it. Okay? That's the census fidei. Okay? That's the sense. And it doesn't belong, ju- and this is an important point, it doesn't belong to just uh, individuals, selected individuals or any individuals, but to the people of God as a whole. Uh, those who are members of the church, not merely externally, but by virtue of their interior dispositions as well, right? So this census fidei has certain effects. Number one, it helps to lead people to accept the word of God as true. It helps them to hold fast to the faith without faltering even when persecuted for it. In fact, at such times, the proclamation of faith is usually stronger during times of persecution, right? The blood of the martyrs is the seedbed of Christians, right? It helps them to penetrate more deeply into the truths of the faith, right? Um, It helps them to understand even what we call the development of doctrine. Development of doctrine, by the way, is not a change of doctrine, but a continual deepening of our understanding of the teaching the apostles handed on. There's a growth in understanding. Dave Verbum teaches that very clearly, right? Uh, Most of the development of doctrine takes place by priests in homilies, but even sometimes by parents um, passing on the faith to their children, okay? 
the doctrine itself doesn't change, but it's like an acorn uh, growing into an oak tree, okay? And it's the same. It's the same doctrine, but it looks different. It's the same teaching, but there's a deeper understanding of it and a new way of looking at it, okay? It also helps them to apply the truths with prudence uh, in their lives as believers, okay? So that's the sensum, sensus fidei. And if you're not living in the state of grace, or if you are dissenting from the church's teaching on something, then the sensus fidei in you is not working properly, okay? Uh, you can't come out and say, uh, I don't think that's a sin for me, if the church teaches that it is a sin, okay? There's only one person who can be wrong there, and that's you. Not the church. Father, could you repeat the first uh, bullet point? The that? first bullet point? Yeah, of course. It helps the faithful to accept the word of God as true. Okay. Now, besides the census fidei that believers have, we also have a term called the census fidelium, which in Latin means the sense of the faithful. Um, as the objective content of what is grasped by the whole body of the faithful through through the census fidei. The census fidelium, or the sense of the faithful, that's what it means, it's the church's conviction that all believers, uh, individually and as a whole church, have a kind of sacred common sense, a sort of shared spiritual instinct for the truth of the faith, okay? So the concept concerns how the faithful together understand and live the faith. It's a collective sense of the faithful, right? As they, they, try, they grasp divine truth because it's the common possession of the whole people of God. And it's that common possession of truth uh, by the whole body of Christ that we believe is protected by the Holy Spirit. Okay? That's actually why the bishops are protected from error. Okay? Not as a personal gift to them, but for the sake of that sense of the faithful, right? Uh, when we say there's this supernatural grasp of the truth on the part of the whole faithful, uh, it includes their readiness to believe what is handed on from the apostles, uh, therefore to accept the teaching of the bishops and popes that, are, that is protected from error, okay? I just wanted to cover that a little bit, okay? Uh, you know, well, let's, we'll give you a break at 8.30. Would that be all right? Since we started late. Okay. Sure. What I want to look at now, we've already touched on this a little bit, the subject and the object of infallibility. Who would we say is the primary subject of infallibility? And by the subject of infallibility, I mean the one who is infallible the members of the church in which infallibility resides, okay? Well, this may surprise you before you're ready to tell me it's the Pope. From Lumen Gentium 12, it's very clear that the primary subject of infallibility is the whole people of God. Okay? And we're going to read that now. Lumen Gentium 12... Um, 
Some of you I cannot see very well. Um, I'll read it. Okay, thank you. <laughs> the holy people of God shares also in Christ's prophetic office. It spreads abroad a living witness to him, especially by means of life of faith and charity, and by offering to God a sacrifice of praise. The tribute of lips which give praise to his name, the entire body of the faithful, anointed as they are by Holy One, cannot err in matters of They manifest this special property by means of the whole people, supernatural discernment in matters of faith, when from bishops down to the last they lay faithful. They show universal agreement in matters of faith and morals. That discernment in matters of faith is arose and sustained by the spirit of truth. It is exercised under the guidance of the sacred teaching authority in faithful and respectful obedience to which the people of God accepts that which is just the word of men, but truly the word of God. Through it, the people of God adheres unwaveringly to the faith given once and for all to the saints, penetrates it more deeply with right thinking and applies, applies it more fully in its life. Hey, so let me flesh this out a little bit more before we take our break. Um, what it's saying there is that the foundation of this infallibility is a share in the prophetic office of Christ through baptism, which we already said. Um, you know, uh, I've noticed sometimes when I'm reading the gospel, uh, especially there's one in particular the gospel of the annunciation in luke when the angel of the angel of the lord was sent by god uh the angel gabriel was sent by god to a virgin betrothed of a man from nazareth joseph and so on and the virgin's name was mary that whole annunciation gospel i have found frequently when it is proclaimed especially on the solemnity of the immaculate conception which is when it's used, one place when it's used, you can absolutely hear a pin drop in the church. It's like the truth is, it's like the, the truth of that text is permeating the whole congregation, bouncing into, penetrating into their hearts, from their hearts to the hearts of the others, to the hearts back to the priest or the deacon or bishop who's proclaiming it. Um, that silent acceptance and acknowledgement that this is the truth, you know? Since the church is a society that consists of both of believers and teachers, the infallibility that he gave her will protect from error, protect her from error, both in belief and in teaching. So infallibility resides in what is called church teaching and church the church believing so when the priest or deacon 
is proclaiming that gospel, just that particular gospel, for example, could be any gospel. Um, that happened once when I, I remember vividly when I was reading the gospel about hell, you could, it was like the same thing kind of happened. That's the church teaching in that moment. The deacon or the priest is teaching by, by proclaiming that gospel or giving a homily on it or on any gospel. And then the faithful that are there, that's the church believing. You see? So by church teaching, we mean the official teachers of the church, most primarily the successors of the apostles, the pope and the bishops united with him. But by the church believing, Believing, we mean the entire body of the faithful who believe their teaching and cannot err as a unified body. Okay? So the infallibility of the church believing resides in the entire body of the faithful, which is what Lumen Gentium 12 is teaching there. Okay? But no individual member of the church is infallible in belief. Not even the Pope himself. He, with the bishops united to him, are infallible as teachers, but not as believers. The Pope, as a, in other words, what I'm saying is, the Pope as a private person can err. As a private person, he can err. But he will never, uh, and he will, ne but he will never bind the faithful to a false belief. Okay. Again. What does Lumen Gentium 12 say? The entire body of the faithful, anointed as they are by the Holy One, cannot err in matters of belief, okay? Because they have this supernatural sense or discernment in matters of faith. When from the bishops down to the last lay faithful, they show universal agreement in matters of faith and morals because they are sustained by the spirit of truth. Okay. Infallibility does not mean that the Pope cannot sin think this should be pretty clear or that the bishops cannot sin or priests cannot sin that's ridiculous we know better okay. now infallibility applies in a unique way uh, to the body of bishops as a whole in union all in union with the successor of saint peter so we saw that in lumen gentium 25 and in donus uh, another document called donum Veritatis, the gift of truth, uh, 17. Um, you know what, before we get into these, because they're, they're kind of long, uh, why don't we take a break and then we'll come back and uh, resume from there. Is that okay? Sure. Okay, take, take, some, take a 15-minute break. Five, um, again, but a different part of it. Uh, go ahead, John. Would you read that Peter. for us, please? Peter. Among the principal duties of the bishop, the preaching of the gospel occupies immense place. But bishops are preachers of the faith, who lead new disciples to Christ, and they are authentic teachers, that is, teachers endowed with the authority of Christ, who preach to the people committed to them the faith they must believe and put into practice, and by the light of the Holy Spirit, illustrate that faith. They bring forth from the treasury of revelation, new things and old, making it bear fruit and vigorously weeding off any errors that threaten their flock. Hmm? Bishops teaching and communion with the Roman pontiff are to be respected 
by all as witnesses to the divine and Catholic truth. In matters of faith and morals, the bishops speak in the name of Christ, and the faithful ought to accept their teaching and adhere to it with religious assent. Okay, so in matters of faith and morals that are taught in the ordinary everyday teaching of the church, what we call the ordinary magisterium, as versus the extraordinary magisterium. By extraordinary magisterium, we mean, uh, like it was stated earlier, when the Pope uh, declares um, a dogma of the faith, um, such as when Pope Pius XII uh, taught the doc dogma of the Assumption of Mary in 1954. That was an exercise of the extraordinary magisterium or in a general ecumenical council uh, when uh, a dogma was taught there with the Pope and the bishops together. That's an exercise of the extraordinary magisterium. That doesn't happen a lot. Most of the church's teaching office takes place, you know, from day to day, right? It's not every day that the Pope declares a new a dogma, right? I mean, when was the last time you heard of a dogma? Or for example, Vatican I, the Vatican I Council in 1870 um, proclaimed the dogma of papal infallibility, okay? But this exercise of the extraordinary magisterium, and it's called extraordinary because it is, it's not something that is done frequently um, at all, okay? It's an exercise, mostly the church exercises her teaching office through her ordinary magisterium, the day-to-day -day teaching of the Pope and the bishops, okay? With that day-to-day -day, uh, pre-teaching of the faith on matters of faith and moral, morals, the assent that, the human response to that is religious assent of mind and will, right? Or sometimes it's called submission of mind and will or intellect and will, okay? <clears throat> So let's look now at the next document, Donum Veritatis. This is on the ecclesial vocation of a theologian from 1990 from the Sacred Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. John Tremblay, please. I don't even see what that is. Sorry. The next one I have is Luke Jackson 25. Is that what you want to read, Father? You just read that. The next one. Uh, there's a couple of parts there. Okay. De verbum. Okay. Donum veritatis. Okay. You have that? No. No. It's on my sheet. I don't know. There's a different version that came out, Father. Oh, jeez. Okay. A different version? Yeah. No. Well, Donovan like Tati's twenty Tati's twenty three is um, on the one I have. It's on the page where the questions start. It starts with the words "divine assistance is also given." Yeah. You have that, Diane? Yeah, I have. That. Okay, now go ahead. Do you I have the last end of the Okay, seven. Is also given to the successors of the apostles, teaching in communion with the successor of Peter, 
and in a particular way to the Roman pontiff as pastor of the whole church when exercising their ordinary magisterium. Even should this not issue an infallible definition or in a definitive pronouncement, but in the proposal of some teaching which leads to a better understanding of revelation in matters of faith and morals and to moral directives derived from such teaching. One must therefore take into account the proper character of every exercise of the magisterium, considering the extent to which its authority is engaged. It is also to be borne in mind that all acts of the magisterium derive from the same source, that is, from Christ, who desires that people walk in the entire truth. For this same reason, reason magisterial decisions in matters of discipline even if they are not guaranteed by the character of infallibility, are not without divine assistance and call for the adherence of the faithful. Okay, so matters of discipline. For example, uh, the Catholics should make their Easter duty during a prescribed period, or the, priest, the precepts of the church, for example, that should be obeyed, uh, should be adhered to by the faithful. So... While individual bishops uh, in their own teaching do not individually enjoy the charism of infallibility, uh, and as individuals, they could be subject to error. Okay, we, We're actually seeing some of this now in Europe uh, among some of the German bishops who uh, want to take a new look at um, uh, homosexuality. Um, they want to take a new look at that. Well, I don't, you know, individual bishops wanting to take a new look at that well forget it you know that's never going to change right i remember cardinal connor one day uh, back in the i don't know must have been sometime in the 80s uh, a group called act up it was called it was a group of homosexual activists who desecrated the eucharist at the cathedral saint patrick's um to protest the church's teaching and afterwards, he came out, he was very, very angry, to protest the church's teaching on abortion and on uh, homosexual acts. And he came out and he said, I'll, I'll never forget it. Uh, I'll never forget it. He gave a press conference. He said, the church will be teaching that abortion is gravely sinful until the end of time. The church will be teaching that homosexual acts are gravely sinful until the end of time. And they'll desecrate my cathedral again over my dead body. That's what he said. So, individual bishops can be wrong, right? Um, but there's always been the understanding in the church that there is a special charism of the Holy Spirit that pertains to the gathering of bishops, to the college of bishops as especially universal gatherings of bishops throughout the world. Uh, that's why there have been a number of ecumenical councils in the history of the church, where the bishops from all over the world uh, have come together to teach or clarify, or in some cases to correct a point of Catholic doctrine, um, knowing that they have the protection and assistance of the Holy Spirit to articulate the truths of the faith that need to be particularly expressed in any given day and age. 
And I say a particular given day and age because the needs of the faithful are different in each age. Uh, there are truths that may be denied or the parts of the faith that are coming under fire uh, are different from age to age. Uh, I already used the example of uh, the Nestorian heresy in the 4th century, which denied the divine motherhood of the Virgin Mary. Um, that was settled at the Council, Ecumenical Council of Ephesus. Okay? Um, there were other church councils that dealt with various Christological heresies. Uh, they, these, these Christological that, that pertain to the person of Christ, to, to, uh, they were trying to grapple with who is Jesus Christ. And many of those heresies either denied his true divinity or denied his true humanity. And so, for example, during the Arian heresy, the Council of Nicaea uh, settled that, right? The one in being with the Father, a consubstantial with the Father, was the essential teaching of Nicaea. Um, later on, the Council of Chalcedon expressed a fuller truth. So we had some development of doctrine with the Council of Chal Chalcedon, which said that Jesus Christ is true God and true man united to a divine person. So he had two, he had two, this is Chalcedon, right? If you study Christology, you should know this, right? Um, that the council of Chalcedon. In Jesus Christ, there is a human nature and there's a divine nature united to the second person of the blessed Trinity, God, the son, the divine person. We call that at the hypostatic union, by the way, right? Um, so the way the bishops and the Pope have to articulate the same age-old truth will differ from age to age. Even when the bishops are dispersed throughout the world and universally teach in union with the Pope, uh, when their teaching is in agreement on, on some point that is held to be divinely revealed uh, and are to be definitively held by all Catholics, uh, even if they're not gathered together in an ecumenical council uh, making some solemn definition, their universal unanimity about a particular doctrine is, ex is an expression of the church's infallibility. Okay? Um, so we see that now and further on in net the next part of G Lumen Gentium 25, because obviously it's very important, the chapter here. Uh, we'll, we're, let's read that next. Um, who, who hasn't read would like to read? Sorry. Text messages here. Okay. Um, anyone? I'll read, but there's three Lumen Gentium uh, 25s, Father. I know there will. Well, I separated them. They shouldn't all be together, though. How is it that you got, how is it that some of you got one handout and someone got a different handout? I don't know. I didn't get that last, I don't even know the name of it. Uh, the Dominum, the, I don't even know what you read, uh, Diane. Oh, very Veritatis. Okay, Veritatis. That's addressed to theologians. Uh, no. That was on page seven of my particular handout. It was one of the right. left items. Now, this could be my fault because last night, I went through and I revised the handout. I uh, printed it before that, Father. Well, that must make then. That's probably why I revised it and then 
deleted it and re reposted it. All right. The new one. So okay. I apologize for that. Well, do you have the then, Colleen? Do you have the one that begins Lumen Gentle Twenty Five? Although In this individual bishops. Uh. Yeah, we have that. Okay, that's the one we want to read. I do not have the page four. I've like it, Father. All right, you go ahead. Someone else read it. Although the individual bishops do oh, not enjoy, yeah, is that the one? Right. Yeah, I see it. Yeah. Although the individual bishops do not enjoy the prerogative of infallibility, they nevertheless proclaim Christ's doctrine infallibly whenever, even though dispersed throughout the world, but still maintaining the bond of communion among themselves and with the successor of Peter, and authentically teaching of faith and morals. They are in agreement on one position as definitively to be held. This is even more clearly verified when gathered together in an ecumenical council that they are teachers and judges of faith and morals for the universal church whose definitions must be adhered to with the submission of faith and this infallibility with which the divine redeemer willed his church to be endowed in defining doctrine of faith and morals extends as far as the deposit of revelation extends which must be religiously guarded and faithfully expounded Okay, so that explains it very, very well, I think. Um, so infallibility pertains first to the whole people of God, and then for their sake, the whole body of bishops, the college of bishops, and for their sake, for the sake of the unity of the whole college of bishops, infallibility in the church uh, is a personal charism that is given by the Holy Spirit to the Pope in his teaching and that's because the pope here this answers one of your questions this is because the pope alone is the head of the college of bishops by the very nature of his office the pope has the capacity to teach in a way that binds the whole church in conscience so what he's teaching based on the words of jesus what you bind on earth is bound in heaven what you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. Okay, so when he's speaking individually, he's protected by the charism of infallibility. Binding what? What you bind, you bind the consciences of Catholics to the truth. And now, the next, another Lumen Gentium 25 again, um, talks about that office of the Roman Pontiff. So maybe, Colleen, you have that? Yes. All right. And, and this is the infallibility which the Roman pontiff, the head of the College of Bishops, enjoys in virtue of his office, when, as the supreme shepherd and teacher of all the faithful, who confirms his brethren in their faith, by a definitive act, he proclaims a doctrine of faith or morals. And therefore, his definitions of themselves and not from the consent of the church are justly styled irreformable since they are pronounced with the assistance of the Holy Spirit, promised to him in blessed Peter, and therefore they need no approval of others, nor do they allow an appeal to any other judgment. 
For then the Roman pontiff is not pronouncing judgment as a private person, but as a supreme teacher of the universal church in whom the charism of infallibility of the church itself is individually present. He is expounding or defending a, a doctrine of Catholic faith. The infallibility promised to the church resides also in the body of bishops. When the body exercises the supreme magisterium with the successor of Peter. To these definitions, the assent of the church can never be wanting on account of the activity of that same Holy Spirit by which the whole flock of Christ is preserved and progresses in unity of faith. Okay, so when the Pope speaks uh, from his office as the Roman pontiff, um, when he defines by a definitive act uh, some point of the faith and dogma, um, these are called irreformable. And they're irreformable because of his, because he is head of the College of Bishops and enjoys the assistance of the Holy Spirit. He's subject to no one, he's subject to, to no one. Okay? No one can judge uh, the first C. Okay? That's an infallibility he enjoys. Not when he speaks as a private person, though. So, for example, maybe you've heard this in the past. Pope Francis is on an airplane, and the press is all around him, and they're asking all kind of questions. And they was, he was asked about something pertaining to same-sex same marriage or something. I don't know. And he was quoted as saying, who am I to judge? Well, of course, the press took that out of context, cherry-picking um, his comments and then making a big to-do about it, like all of a sudden, uh, Pope Francis is going to allow gay marriage. No one was a greater opponent of gay marriage than Francis was when he was the Archbishop of Buenos Aires. Okay, And he's since, he's since made that very clear, that this is a teaching that will never change. Okay, So, um, so but sometimes he's got to be careful. Sometimes he is, you know, he's such a folksy kind of pope that he's got to be careful to remember that when he speaks off the cuff like that, uh, the press, the worldly press, the secular press, is, you know, they're just trying to find something that they can pick out uh, to create an issue out of it, you know. But when he exercised his ordinary magisterium later on, when he clarified it, he made it very clear that's a teaching that can never change, okay. Same thing with the indissolubility of marriage. Same thing with the church's teaching on contraception, on abortion, um, you know, any of the moral teachings, really. So Lumen Gentium 25 is basically saying that bishops share in this infallibility as a body in union with the Pope. Um, and that charism of infallibility is active in two different ways or two different occasions. One, when they intend to define a matter of faith or morals in an ecumenical council. So that's, again, as I said before, an exercise of the extraordinary magisterium. Two, when they're dispersed throughout the world, but teaching in union with the Pope, and they're in agreement on some point of doctrine, 
to be definitively held. Okay? Definitively held. Or, um, and then the final or supreme bearer of the infallibility that, that Christ gave to the church is the head of the College of Bishops, uh, the successor of St. Peter, the Bishop of Rome, the Pope, because his personal charism infallibility is essential to the infallibility that must be possessed by all the bishops together. Kabish? So we're talking, we've been talking about the subject of infallibility, uh, and now I want to just take a look at the object of infallibility. When we speak of the object of infallibility, we're looking at what it is in the teaching that can be said to be infallible. The primary object, and this answers another question on your sheet. Deposit of faith. The primary object of infallibility is the deposit of faith. That body of divinely revealed truths contained in sacred scripture and sacred tradition. Okay. I don't need to go into what sacred scripture is or sacred tradition is. All right. You should know that. So the church in passing on this, the deposit of faith, the body of divinely revealed truth is protected from corrupting that truth in the act of passing it on. Okay. And by divinely revealed truths, which call for the obedience of faith, the submission of faith um, would be, for example, the truths found in the creed, uh, the incarnation, the redemption, the real presence of our Lord in the Blessed Eucharist, the Mass as a sacrifice, all of the Marian dogmas. There were four Marian dogmas, by the way. The divine motherhood of Mary, that she is truly the mother of God. Her perpetual virginity, before, during, and ever after. Her immaculate conception and her assumption. Okay. Um, the dogmas of heaven, hell, and purgatory, again, would also fall under that. Papal infallibility would fall under that. Okay. Okay. So... Uh, that doesn't mean that there's going to be some new public revelation. No. The body of revelation, divine revelation, is closed. It ended with the death of the last apostle in around 10, 110 AD. There'll be no new divine revelations. Infallibility means that the teaching that has already been revealed by God is able to be handed on by the church in its integrity and entirety without being ever being corrupted okay Dave Irvin 4 uh, speaks of that the Christian dispensation therefore as the new and definitive covenant will never pass away and we now await no further new public revelation for the glorious manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ what does that mean the glorious manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ what's that referring to Second coming. Second coming, right. Okay. Now let's look at Ludwig Ott. Ludwig Ott, and I heartily recommend, if you don't already have this book, 
this would be a good book to have uh, on your shelves as a resource. Uh, when I was in the seminary, this was one of the first textbooks that we we were asked to keep uh, um, close by because it's really a great, I mean, I would say the catechism, certainly, but the fundamentals of Catholic dogma uh, is one of the, is a compendium. It's divided by topics. So you could go to, and let's say you wanted to look up um, the infallibility of the church, for example, or the dogma of hell, or the Immaculate Conception, or whatever, or the divinity of Christ. It's all broken up, and he gives you the teaching and the councils, what they taught, and it's all systematically put out for you. It's not a book I'd recommend that you read, uh, you know, unless you have insomnia. Don't try to read it cover to cover, but it's a resource. So let's see what Ludwig Ott has to say. Um, I think, why don't you read this for us, James? primary object of infallibility is the deposit of faith, that is, all that is in scripture and tradition. The church's infallibility extends as far as the deposit of divine revelation. It also extends to all those elements of doctrine, moral doctrine included, without which the saving truths of the faith cannot be preserved, explained, or observed. Okay, and then, in another document of the sacred congregation for the doctrine of the faith, we have, uh, it's called the profession of faith. Um, it gives more examples. Like I already kind of, I already gave you most of them, right? Articles of the creed, all the dogmas about Christ, the Marian dogmas, the institution of the sacraments by Christ, their efficacy and so on. Um, I don't think there's anything the, the existence of original sin i'm just looking at some that i didn't mention that are there uh the immortality of the soul um the immediate recompense after death the judgment after death the absence of error in the sacred texts um the grave immorality of abortion so on okay that's the primary object the deposit of faith but there's a secondary object Besides the deposit of faith, the church is also guided and protected from error in teaching all those truths which, while not necessarily revealed by God directly as part of the deposit of faith, are necessary to be held in order for the church to guard and expound the deposit of faith in its integrity and purity. Uh, these are truths which are connected, they say. That's the word that's used in the document. They're connected in some way with divine revelation of, uh, you know, for example, theological conclusions, dogmatic historical facts, truths of uh, the nat the natural order uh, uh, of the natural law, the natural moral law, truths of reason, we would call that. Um, and those are also subject to infallibility, right? Anything connected to the deposit of faith which is infallible, will also be infallible. Um, for example, in philosophy in the 18th century, 19th century, there, there was called into question the variability of the human mind uh, to know anything outside of its own self. 
the human mind could only perceive what was in the human mind and that there were no assurances that there was actually uh, anything was actually coming to a knowledge of reality in itself outside of the mind okay Um, that's not a question that is divinely revealed by God but the church actually attacked that very notion because if it's not possible for the human mind to know what's outside of itself, we cannot even come into contact with divine revelation. So the church taught in a solemn definition that it is possible for the human mind to know reality in itself, outside of the mind, and in fact to know the very existence of God. Okay? The human mind can reason its way to know that God exists, okay? And that's found in Wisdom 13, the Book of Wisdom 13, and Romans 1.20, by the way. That would be another example of that other kind of truth besides divinely revealed truth. Now, notice that the church's infallibility only extends, I said earlier, to matters of faith and morals. It does not include the discipline of the church. That is to say, church-made laws and regulations, um, particularly ceremonial directives and options and so on. Um, So it doesn't extend to prudential decisions and judgments of the popes and bishops, uh, the Holy See's concordats or treaties with other nations, the Vatican's foreign policy, uh, and so on. So the church is infallible in her, in other words, in her teaching, but not in the exercise of her government. You got that? She's infallible in her teaching, not in the exercise of her government. But whether in the case of primary or secondary object of infallibility, there are some key ways in which we can know when the church is teaching infallibly. This is important to know because not every single thing that we read in some church document falls under the gift of infallibility. How do you know? I'll tell you. (laughs) Don't, Don't hang on to every word. All right, you should hang on to every word. Number one. There is a statement by the Pope or an ecumenical council where a solemn definition is being made or a doctrine that is to be definitively held. That's the key word. Definitively held means there's no going back on that teaching. Father, could you please repeat that just one more time? Yes. When the Pope or an ecumenical council declares that a point of doctrine is to be definitively held. When you hear the word definitive, you know that's an infallible statement. The teaching is set in stone by the church. So whenever there is a solemn statement by the church like that, that is protected by the gift of infallibility. When it pertains to divinely revealed truths, or those truths which are connected with divinely revealed truths requires that they be definitively held. For example, 
the solemn definition of Mary's immaculate conception or assumption. Or even 1870, the solemn definition of papal infallibility. Okay? Now, how does one recognize that science has been definitively held? You, you, you can tell by the language used in the statement. That's the key. You look at the language of the statement. There are very few times in history when a pope individually has issued, as I said earlier, through an exercise of the extraordinary magisterium, a statement that would be considered infallible just by the pope's teaching alone. One of the examples was what I just gave you, would be the, the dogma of the Immaculate Conception of the Virgin Mary, uh, or um, the dogma of the Assumption of the Virgin Mary, for example. The Pope used language that tells us very clearly that he's intending to bind the whole church and therefore is protected by infallibility. Okay? And he, in, 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 for example, what you have next on your hand, handout, I hope, is a statement from the Apostolic Constitution entitled Ineffabilis Deus, in God Ineffable, uh, which the Pope uh, declared the Immaculate Conception, the dogma of the Immaculate Conception. We can read that, and the Pope lists a whole series of reasons for proclaiming the dogma, and then he comes to the key statement, which reads as follows. Who would like to read that for us? I do it. Who would like to be the Pope? Go ahead, Paul. Accordingly, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, for the honor of the Holy and Undivided Trinity, for the glory and adornment of the Virgin Mother of God, for the exaltation of the Catholic faith, and for the furtherance of the Catholic religion, by the authority of Jesus Christ our Lord, of the blessed apostles Peter and Paul, and by our own, we solemnly declare, pronounce, and define that the doctrine which holds that the Blessed Virgin Mary, in the first instance of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege granted by Almighty God, in view of the merits of Jesus Christ, the Savior of the human race, was preserved free from all stain of original sin is a doctrine revealed by God and therefore to be believed firmly and constantly by all the faithful. Hence, if anyone shall dare, which God forbid, to think otherwise than has been defined by us, let him know and understand that he is condemned by his own judgment, that he has suffered shipwreck in the faith, that he has separated from the unity of the church and that furthermore, by his own action, he incurs the penalties established by law if he should, if he should are to express in words or writing or by any other outward means the errors he think in his heart. Well, there's nothing wishy-washy about that statement, is there? <laughs> That's very strong and unequivocal language. See what I mean? Yeah. This is the kind of language that we find in a solemn definition, and that is how we can recognize the kind of teaching that is protected by uh, infallibility. Okay, um, 
when we're looking at the teachings of ecumenical councils, very often the way they would articulate a teaching and then backing it up by adapting the words found in one of the epistles of St. Paul, for example. If anyone denies this teaching, they'd say, let him be anathema. That's St. Paul, right? Let him be damned. damned. Okay. Uh, they're quoting 1 Corinthians 16, 22. Let anyone be accursed who has no love for the Lord. Anathema in a, is a Greek word meaning cursed or apart uh, from the unity of the church, cut off. Okay, it's a kind of strong language we find in these solemn definitions. Okay, the Council of Trent in uh, between 1545 and 1563 uh, issued quite a few anathemas in response to the errors of Protestantism. Okay, they wouldn't be so popular today, but they were they were they were pronounced. Here's one. If anyone says that the sacraments of the new law were not instituted by Jesus Christ our Lord, or that they are more or less than seven, or that any one of the seven is not truly and properly a sacrament, let him be anathema. And that's how they listed all the, against all the errors of Protestantism. Now, there's another way we can recognize the church's infallible teaching when we find some particular point on which the bishops throughout the world, um, independent of any individual culture or language, uh, and in union with the Pope, always in union with the Pope, are in agreement on some point of teaching as something to be definitively held, something divinely revealed. Uh, for example, I don't think there's a particular solemn statement uh, about something so basic as God exists. But the very fact that the bishops throughout the world and the popes throughout the centuries have universally and everywhere taught that as something absolutely true and revealed by God means that even though there's no solemn definition uh, by a pope or a council about it, this is, this is teaching that is infallible. Okay? Something that was held everywhere by everyone at all times. Okay? Now, we've already touched on some of this. The next thing I want to cover and bring to an end, because my throat is starting to get sore, the degrees of magisterial teaching and the ascent needed by the faithful. We've already kind of touched on this. So when we are confronted with a divinely revealed truth taught infallibly by the church, this calls for a human response. And there are different levels of, dis of ascent, A-S-S-E-N-T. To divinely reveal truths that's considered of the faith, de fide definita. We accept it because it is revealed by God. To not accept it would be to deny God who reveals. It would be a failure to believe the God who reveals. Okay? When we deny a truth revealed by God, that is the definition of heresy. When something is definitively taught as being revealed by God, we have to give definitive assent to that teaching. What I already told you, the assent of faith, the, um, the obedience of faith is what it's called, or the submission of faith. Okay, the word faith has to be in there. The obedience of faith, the assent of faith, the, the, the submission of faith, however you word it, 
that's what what has to be given okay that means that we recognize that the teaching is unchangeable that it is taught in a way that it is protected by the holy spirit okay in fact there's a beautiful prayer that i learned as a child sadly my seminarians never heard of it so i made sure they know it now called the acts of faith hope and love and the act of faith says i put it there for you did i not yes oh my god i firmly believe that you are one god and three divine persons etc etc i believe these and all the truths which the holy catholic church teaches why because you revealed them who can neither deceive nor be deceived so we're assenting to the god who reveals then there's definitive teaching uh two levels of this are infallible that calls for definitive assent um and then we have all the other teachings the the authoritative teachings which we give religious submission i already told you that religious submission of intellect and will or or assent of will and intellect we assent to it okay um these these haven't been articulated with the kind of strong language that we see uh, in when the Pope declares a certain point of dogma or ecumenical councils do, but they are teachings that still require assent of intellect and will, because by that we recognize that the pastors commissioned by Christ are teaching truths which are for the sake of our salvation, and they also enjoy the guidance of the Holy Spirit, even if they haven't been articulated solemnly and infallibly. Okay? They're still authoritative teachings taught by the ordinary magisterium, the everyday ongoing teaching of the church. Okay? The word in Latin is obsequium, which means a readiness or a willingness to comply. That's what, that's what we mean when we say religious assent uh, or religious submission of intellect and will. A willingness, a ready willingness to comply. Okay. Um, it arrives. It arrives from uh, reverence. Reverence for what? For the office bestowed on certain men by God of protecting the church's common good, a common good that includes the truth, the faith. Okay. We meet a teaching from the magisterium, the ordinary magisterium, with a willingness to assent okay to this god's given god-given office okay so the response of the faithful then to that teaching is religious a submission of mind and will submission of mind and will or assent of mind it seems it means the same thing all right i don't want to confuse you with all these different um i just want you to get the fact that we're, we're saying the same thing Okay, whether you use the expression religious submission of mind and will, religious assent of mind and will, or intellect and will, means the same thing. Okay? That means Catholics must obey will as well as believe, intellect, the teachings of the authentic ordinary magisterium. And they must do so whether those teachings have been declared to be infallible or not. That means that a Catholic must think with, basically what I'm saying is, what, what, what this is saying is, Catholics must think with the mind of the church. Okay? 
he or she must conform our intellects with what the church proposes as true. Okay? One obeys, and by doing so, who are we obeying? We're not obeying the institutional church. We're obeying Christ. For to obey the church is to obey Christ, her bridegroom, okay? with the will and also with the mind. The benefit you all have in taking theology courses is that you're using your minds to better understand the truth, sacred truth, see? So that hopefully then you can teach it to others. Um, let's look at uh, Lumen Gentium. Let's look at the last few documents and then um, that'll be, we'll see if you have any questions and then we'll call it, call it a night because it's almost already 9.30. Lumen Gentium number 25 again. All right. I'll take it. Okay, John Tremblay, thank you. This religious submission of mind and will must be shown in a special way to the authentic magisterium of the Roman pontiff, even when he is not speaking ex cathedra. Okay, hold on, pause there. Do you all know what ex cathedra means? Yes. Ex cathedra refers in Latin from the chair of St. Peter. It's a thing. It's not like he literally stands. The chair of St. Peter, if you ever go to St. Peter's Basilica, is gilded in uh, gold and bronze. And, you know, it's up there. It's, it's held up by the four doctors of the church. Um, the Pope doesn't stand on that or necessarily sit on that. But it's an figurative expression from the chair of Peter, which means ex cathedra, he's proclaiming a dogma of the faith. So when uh, Pope Pius XII declared the dogma of the Assumption, he was speaking ex cathedra from the chair with the authority of Peter and guided by the Holy Spirit. That's what ex cathedra means. Go on. That is, it must be shown in such a way that his supreme magisterium is acknowledged with reverence. The judgments made by him are sincerely adhered to according to his manifest mind and will. His mind and will in the matter may be known either from the Character, uh, chart, uh, yeah. The character of the documents from his frequent repetition of the same doctrine, or from his manner of speaking. Okay. Um, the profession of faith. Joan, please. Moreover, I adhere with religious submission of will and intellect to the teachings which either the Roman pontiff or the College of Bishops enunciate when they exercise their authentic magisterium, even if they do not intend to proclaim these teachings by a definitive act. And for the most part, they don't. As I said before, um, proclaiming a teaching by a definitive act is an exercise of the what? Ordinary. No. Extraordinary magisterium. Tisk, tisk. Extra. Think of extraordinary. Anything that's extraordinary is out of the ordinary. How often has a pope done that in your lifetime? Never. He came very close, I think, when John Paul II uh, said he used very strong language. Remember when we talked about... Um, why women cannot be ordained to the priesthood, um, I solemnly declare that this, that the church has no authority whatsoever to ordain women to the priesthood. And this is to be definitively held 
by all the faithful. I would say that was an infallible declaration of the extraordinary magisterium. But that it's very rare. And often it's done when uh, the faith is called into question or it comes under attack and so on. Yes. Father, has there ever been a time in history where a latter pope uh, sought to change something that was uh, extraordinary uh, magisterium of a prior pope? Not that I am aware of at all. No. No, because he would have had a rebellion on his hands, especially if it was something pertaining to a divinely revealed truth. And that would be heretical, I presume. That would be heretical, sure. Father, in the example you just gave, why wasn't John Paul's uh, infallible? Was it challenged? Because you said the language is strong enough for it to be. Why wasn't it? Some theologians wanted to, well, some theologians, especially liberal theologians, they didn't like it. So they would say, they wiggled, they tried, they were looking for some wiggle room to say that, well, it wasn't infallible. Like, like that mattered. I mean, come on. Uh, even giving them, even if you were to say it wasn't a definitive act, which I think it was, huh? It was. Um, it was still, even if it was just an exercise of his ordinary magisterium, it required religious submission of mind and will. There's no, there's no wiggle room about it. No. Now there are a lot of moral teachings the church hasn't definitively spoken on either but we know that there that we require requires submission of mind and will even when catholics disagree with it or don't don't want to accept it you know um you know i i think i touched on this in an answer i gave to Vinny. you know pick your sin everybody wants a sin in peace pick your sin and then you'll say you know well i don't believe that that that's i don't believe in that teaching you know i don't think it's a sin for me i'm living with my girlfriend we're fornicating oh no no we're making love we're engaged in premarital sex we love each other it can't be a sin all right so they just you know that's what they that's what they want to do i can't tell you the issues i had when i was a pastor trying to prepare couples who were married who were already living together I used to tell them, uh, I used to ask them from this point on, I'm not asking you if you're sleeping together, but I'm telling you right now, I want you to refrain from that from now until your wedding night. I said, you're going to have the whole rest of your marriage, you know, for that. Just, it'll be that more, that more um, uh, uh, exciting and pleasurable, whatever, whatever language I use, you know, if you, Postpone it. Move into separate quarters if you're not doing so already. And then I would explain them why it's a sin. And very often, I have to say, to their credit, they would look at me like I had three heads at first, you know. But then when you explain why it's a sin, they'd never heard that before. No one ever explained that to them. All they know is the church says it's a sin, but they don't know why. And, you know, people react so often from emotion rather than from right reason. So when you reason with them and you explain it very carefully, I used examples they could relate to and everything else. Then they said, you know, you're right. I understand now. Okay. Um, or take two men, a gay couple. 
you know, they don't consider it a sin. This is what they want to do. I never had to counsel them before marriage. But, you know, you get my drift. Or abortion or contraception. Pick your sin. You know? All right, I don't know why I went off on that too, but <clears throat> um, where did we leave off? With Donum Veritatis 17. Um, did that earlier, but we did that earlier. Uh, we did some of this already, but we didn't do we didn't do um, the Sacred Congregation on Donum Veritatis 23. That kind of sums it up. So. Uh, go ahead, Douglas. Why don't you why don't you read that for us? When the magisterium, not intending to act definitively, teaches a doctrine to aid a better understanding of revelation and make explicit its contents, or to recall how some teaching is in conformity with the truths of faith, or finally to guard against ideas that are incompatible with these truths, the response called for is that of the religious submission of will and intellect. This kind of response cannot be simply exterior or disciplinary, but must be understood within the logic of faith and under the impulse of obedience to the faith. Okay. So words, they want you to submit your will and your intellect, to think with the mind of the church, to will, to be compliant, um, and not to do it grudgingly, um, like you're being forced to, but to do it out of an obedience to the faith. A recognition that you're obeying Christ. You want to obey Christ because you love Christ. And you want to go to heaven. Because if you don't obey these these teachings, you could go to hell. It's as simple as that. You could fall into mortal sin. I hate to say it, but that's, the tr- that's it. So I say that these are roadmaps to heaven. So a Catholic must believe all that the magisterium teaches, whether infallible or not, whether they're infallibly declared or not, within the logic of faith, in the under the impulse of obedience to faith. Okay, It's not the same as an ascent to faith, but the catechism says it's an extension of it. Okay, So um, I think that's about it. That's all I've got for you tonight. Any questions? Any other questions? Has everything been clear? Okay. Well, if you come up with any questions that you have after reflecting on any of the lesson, uh, just send me an email and I'll be happy to answer it if I can. Next week, next Monday, Monday of Holy Week, I hope we don't... I'm Cynthia sent me today uh, an invitation that she asked me to put on my calendar uh, from now until the end of the semester. So I'm going to simply copy that and paste it in an email to all of you for next week. And hopefully we'll all have the same ID meeting number and we won't have that, <laughs> that we had like we had. Great, great. Amen. Huh? Put it back to midterm. I, I corrected the midterms and I posted the grades on Populi. Yeah, they're on there. They're on Populi, so you can find them. Um, I thought you do all. I thought you did very well. Most of you did very very well. If you did not do very well, then I'm sorry, but uh, I did what I could 
uh, to give points wherever I could, but sometimes that's impossible. So um, if you did not do well, then you have the final, you have the book review to bring your grade up. But most of you did very well. I think you'll be pleased with your grades. The document. And I thank you, and I thank you for that. I, I really appreciate when students do well in, a, in a, on an exam because it shows that you're being serious and you're studying uh, and, and, you know, that no professor wants to fail anyone. Trust me, nobody, no professor takes any joy in failing a student. You know? In a sense, we feel we're a failure if that happens, you know, mm. but I'd say uh, the, uh, all of you, almost all of you did exceedingly well. So thank so you. Father, Cynthia's email showed class on the day after uh, Easter. That's not that's, correct. That's a mistake. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. She said she would, she said she would send an email, but yeah. So if anyone's not here, I don't know. I didn't even take attendance tonight. Is there anyone that you see is not here? Let me look. I don't uh, know who the phones are. Take attendance. Never mind. I'll take it later. I don't think Joan's here. Yeah, huh? thanks a lot, Vin. Thanks. Yeah. <laughs> Joan, he likes to tease you, huh? Yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, words can't express what I feel when he speaks, Father. Sticks and stones. He would love, he loved you, Father. Very quiet tonight, wasn't he? Oh, yeah. Oh, Father, don't even mention it. You yeah. know what's going to happen now. It's oh, the end of the class. Vin, do you have any questions, Vin? That's what I want to know. I'm tired of talking. Vin, do you have any questions? I have questions, but I'm going to hold them tonight. 